Aviation has traveled fast and far in the eventful years since the moment of Orville Wright's first flight in 1903. From then to now, the history of aviation has been a record of magnificent achievement. America, first to conquer the air, has given wings to the world. You know, life is not easy when you have the kind of spirit that Dick Rutan was both gifted and plagued with. Aviation legends had made their names not by merely breaking records, but by setting milestones, and there's a difference. For instance, Charles Lindbergh became the most famous man in the world when he flew the first nonstop solo flight from New York to Paris on May 20th through the 21st of 1927. Amid a blizzard of ticker tape, New Yorkers poured out their admiration and affection for a quiet hero whose solo flight led the way for the thousands of routine crossings that were to follow. This day, the world belonged to Lucky Lindy. That was a milestone. Now, since then, hundreds of millions of people have broken his record. We fly from New York to Paris today in a bit over seven hours at a speed of 550 miles an hour. But you can't take away the milestone. That's forever. But by the early 1980s, all of the milestones had been reached. The all-time altitude record, well, considering that men had already landed on the moon by then, that was out of reach, as was the 25,000 miles per hour speed needed to get there. But there was one left. Now, no one had done it because it wasn't possible to do. No one had ever flown around the world without stopping and without refueling. Now, just from an engineering standpoint alone, it was clearly impossible, but there it sat, the last great milestone, staring at Dick Rutan, mocking him. How do you design an airplane that can fly 29,000 miles on one tank of gas? Well, that turned out to be a lot easier than Dick had originally thought. In fact, all Dick Rutan had to do to get that last great milestone in aviation was to be the older brother of the greatest aircraft design genius in the history of the world. Once he pulled that off, the rest of it was practically inevitable. So, on the morning of December 14th, 1986, Dick Rutan aimed the Voyager down the longest paved runway in the free world at Edwards Air Force Base, just a stone's throw from Mojave. That airplane was designed by Dick Rutan's younger brother, Bert. The Voyager, was a flying fuel tank. Those two side booms would be filled with fuel, as would the wings and even the small canard up front. That canard gave the structure rigidity. It basically locked the booms in place. Now, to hear Dick tell this story, and Bert disputes this, but to hear Dick tell it, just before he climbed aboard the Voyager, Bert pulled him aside and spoke to him quietly and in private. Dickie said, I'm telling you this not as the aircraft designer, but as your brother. If you're not moving at 68 knots when you cross that midfield marker, you're gonna end up in a smoking hole at the end of the runway. I want you to swear to me a blood oath that if you don't have 68 knots by midfield, then you will abort that takeoff. He thought the chances of a successful takeoff were less than 50-50. Then I saw all of those volunteers standing there, he said, and I realized I couldn't let them down. So I hammered the canopy into place, I locked it down and I started the engines. Gina Yeager, his girlfriend at the time, was calling out the airspeed as Voyager waddled down the runway, fully loaded with fuel for the first time ever. 20 knots, she said, 25. Now Dick couldn't see it, but for the first time ever, the Voyager was dragging its wingtips along the runway. No one had ever foreseen this. 
But that final 15% of fuel to get to full fuel had caused the huge fuel booms to go slightly nose down and they twisted the entire wing with it. 45 knots, 50, said Gina. Now up ahead, Dick could see the midfield marker approaching. I almost wrote rapidly approaching, but this takeoff roll would last for more than two minutes and there was nothing about it that was rapid. As they rumbled past that go, no-go marker, Dick thought seriously about the promise he'd made to his baby brother. If Voyager exploded, he would never forgive himself. Now, on the other hand, he'd been working on this project for five years. He was tired and he'd had enough. The plane was nearly impossible to fly. I decided I was gonna fly this thing around the world even if it was on fire, Dick would later say. He'd promised Bert that he would abort the takeoff if he wasn't going at least 68 knots at midfield. Just as he passed the marker, he keyed his mic. 68 knots, he said. But that's not what his airspeed indicator said. His airspeed indicator said 64 knots. The wings continued to scrape along the runway, the asphalt just peeling away the thin skin like sandpaper, and they were starting to run out of room. And then, as perfectly timed as if it were a Hollywood movie, they reached an airspeed that finally got the wings into the game. They started to rise, slowly at first, and then more quickly, just a few seconds later, they were bowed high above Dick's head on either side. The Voyager was designed to be flexible, but no one had ever seen the wings bend like this as they strained to pull almost 10,000 pounds of fuel up into the sky. And then, with less than 10% of the free world's longest runway still available, those arching wings lifted the booms in the cabin gently off the runway, and they started a slow but steady climb. Just a few moments later, Gina called out another airspeed. 100 knots, she said, and Bert, following in the chase plane, let out what could only be called a squeal of delight. 100 knots, hot damn, we got out in front! Dick Rutan started his flying career in the back seat of an F-101B Voodoo. He did the same in the F-89 Scorpion for a while, then served as in-flight navigator aboard a Douglas C-124 Globemaster II, a big, tough, slow propeller airplane. And this experience would come in handy when he would fly a small, fragile, and slow propeller airplane many years later. But then Dick Rutan got to move to the position that every pilot covets whether they care to admit it or not. That's the front and only seat in a fighter jet. In Rutan's case, it happened to be the F-100 Super Sabre, first of the new Century series of designs that came in at the very end of the 50s and into the 60s. And if you were a swinging space-age steely-eyed missile man like Dick Rutan, you had your choice of some pretty cool rides. The F-101 Voodoo that Rutan started in was a Century Series airplane. The Convair F-102 Delta Dagger and its similar-looking successor, the F-106 Delta Dart, were primarily U.S.-based interceptors designed to shoot down Soviet bombers. 
The Republic F-103 was a Mach 3 interceptor that never got past the mock-up stage, but the F-107 Ultra Sabre did. With its distinctive top-mounted air intakes, it was a wicked-looking design that eventually lost the ground support role to the F-105 Thunder Chief, which became the primary fighter bomber of the Vietnam War. But the F-100, the Hun, was, to me, by far the coolest of them all and the most iconic. Seeing the Thunderbirds flying their F-100 Super Sabres changed my life. In my opinion, it is and remains the only muscle car that ever flew for the United States Air Force. Dick Rutan would fly 325 combat missions over Vietnam. The first 220 of them were something of a blur, an endless series of ground attack missions. I spent those first months turning the jungle into toothpicks and making monkeys go deaf, he would later recall. Now, there would be times when a flight of Huns would be given a compass heading and an altitude, then a guy at a radar scope 100 miles away would call, ready, ready, pickle and the F-100s would release their bombs. Now, given the resolution of that radar screen and the fact that they were coming in at something like 400 knots, that meant that those bombs had a good chance of coming within 20 or 30 miles of their target. It was one hell of a way to fight a war. But then, Rutan heard about a special unit that was forming, and these Hun drivers would be doing something different, and they'd be doing something different differently. These guys, there would be exactly 157 of them, were doing something not only more difficult, but also much more dangerous. And if they could pull it off tactics-wise, it would be something much more effective as well. Now, let me show you the deadliest aircraft of World War II, the Piper L4 Grasshopper. It's just a Piper Cub in olive drab paint, a plane so slow, so easy to fly, and so forgiving of mistakes that its owners swear that it can just barely kill you. But this slow, ungainly little fabric-winged twerp was, in fact, the deadliest aircraft of World War II because the L-4 Grasshopper was a spotter plane, a plane that would fly low and slow over the battlefield and designate targets for the big guns or the ground attack aircraft or even the infantry to blow to kingdom come. It was to World War II what the observation balloon was to World War I, your eye in the sky. Now, balloons worked in World War I because the front stayed stagnant for almost the entire four years. But by the time the second war came around and Blitzkrieg, the commanders of rapid advances of motorized armor, like the Third Army that George Patton hurled into Germany in the final year of the war, well, those guys needed to know where the bad guys were and how many of them there are. The Grasshopper was probably responsible for more damage to enemy troops than any other aircraft. It was the great unsung hero of the big one. Now, after the passing of the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in August of 1964, the United States went all in on Vietnam. And given the extent and density of the ground cover in Southeast Asia, hiding enemy troops was easier than during any other war in U.S. history. Now, that made the job of these reconnaissance planes and their crews, now called FACs for forward air controllers, that made them even more essential. They started trying with the Douglas A-1 Sky Raider, the last propeller-driven combat airplane in the United States inventory. It had good slow-flying capabilities and excellent duration over the target, 
Pilots and ground crews referred to the A-1 as the SPAD, after the World War I French-built fighter plane used by American aces like Eddie Rickenbacker and Frank Luke. But enemy air defenses grew more and more sophisticated, and the Sky Raider had a single engine, and that was leading to a lot of losses. The Sky Raider was then superseded by the North American OV-8 Bronco, had all of the good qualities of the SPAD, plus much better visibility downward and a second engine to get home on. But it wasn't long before they were being shot out of the sky as well. You see, unlike in World War II or Korea, the dense jungle canopy of Vietnam could hide all manner of anti-aircraft guns, not to mention surface-to-air missiles. Someone, in something, would have to get over those enemy positions, mark the elusive and devilishly hard-to-spot targets so that other fast movers could come in and hit the targets. Now, that someone would be Dick Rutan and precisely 156 other pilots. The something would be the fast and rugged Hun, the F-100 Super Sabre, and together, they would invent an entirely new way of doing the target designation and spotting missions. The SPAD and the Bronco pilots were, as I said, fax forward air controllers, but this unit would be doing something new. These guys were fast facts. Instead of flying slow and vulnerable propeller planes, they'd come in thundering low and fast in the first fighter ever to be able to go supersonic in level flight. The Fast Facts unit's call sign would be Misty, and for the final 105 missions he flew in Vietnam, Dick Rutan would fly Misty 1-1 sorties in the morning and Misty 1-2 missions in the afternoon. They would fly the F-100F, the two-seat variant of the Hun, and as in so many other areas, the Misties would do things differently. Two-seat crews for Air Force, Navy, and Marine aircraft consisted of a pilot and a backseater known in the Air Force as a WSO, or Weapons Systems Officer, or a RIO, Radar Intercept Officer for the Navy and the Marines. Or, if you want to avoid any confusion or embarrassment, they were just usually referred to as the GIB. That means the guy in back. Now, there was usually a tight bond between the pilot and his GIB, but after a few beers, you could hear the fighter jock saying that you could train a bear to be a GIB. But on the Misty missions, both men were rated pilots, and they would simply alternate between flying from the front and then marking maps and taking photos from the rear. Dick Rutan loved flying for the Misties. In America's worst fought war, they were serious, professional warriors whose hands had been untied from behind their back and who were ready to get down to serious business. I came here to win the war, he later said, and these guys were there for the same reason. Now, this was grueling, dangerous work, very different from what Rutan had been doing before. On a regular strike mission, you'd take off, you'd fly to the target, then you would allow the gravitational field of the Earth to pull six 500-pound Mark 82 snake eyes off the rails and draw them down into the bosom of the bad guys. Coming in fast and very low, the Snake Eyes would deploy their high-drag fins as soon as they dropped. This slowed the bomb down enough to allow the jet to fly clear of the blast radius. And then you would turn around and go home, and that would count as one mission. But the Misties, however, would proceed to the target area. They'd put white phosphorus rockets onto the target, and then they'd get out of the way for the regular Air Force guys to put the bombs into the white smoke. They'd get clear of enemy airspace, find a KC-135 tanker, top off, and then head back and do it again. Now, a long, regular strike mission might last an hour and a half, but a MISTI mission 
could be five or six hours long and involve five or six low-level ingresses and egresses to the target area in one single flight. By any reasonable definition, that would amount to five or six strike missions in a single day. But when the MISTI flights would finally call it a day, they would get the credit for only one mission. It was extremely dangerous. Now, back when he was turning jungle into toothpicks and deafening monkeys, Rutan would come in low and fast, drop the snake eyes or a stick of napalm, and then proceed directly the hell out of there. Which could happen pretty quickly in the hunt. It certainly wasn't common for them to get out of the area at supersonic speeds, but they could do it if they had to. Pilots would sometimes say they got out of a target area at the speed of heat, which is somewhat faster than the speed of sound and somewhat slower than the speed of light. But the Misties couldn't do that. The Misties had to loiter, and loitering is against the law. Enemy gunners may not catch them on the first pass. They'd be coming in almost as fast as the sound they made. Once over the target, the pilot not flying had to spot a target underneath the thick canopy at high speed and then set up for a pass to put a rocket in there, all the while being shot at by other anti-aircraft emplacements. Now, this required a certain kind of a mindset. If someone was stupid enough to shoot at Dick Rutan, said Dick Rutan, then I'd go back and kill him. Now, they usually didn't have surface-to-air missiles that could hit them that low, but what they lacked in SAMs, they more than made up for in BFGs. And they weren't just shooting machine guns at them, although they shot a hell of a lot of machine guns at them. They would go after the Misties with 37 and 57-millimeter anti-aircraft artillery shells, essentially a miniature howitzer round, and one of those would usually do the trick. The Huns' most vulnerable area would be their belly, and Rutan would later say that when those AAA rounds came close enough, the shock waves from the individual shells that would just narrowly miss sounded like dozens of major league batters swinging for the fences across the entire bottom of the airplane. If a gun sight fired at me, then that gun sight had to die, said Rutan, which seems simple enough, really. If the enemy gunners were particularly annoying and the Misty pilots were out of ammo or low on fuel, a two-man Misty crew would call dibs on that specific position and they'd hit it when they came back from the tanker. Having been designed before the days of boy wonders like Robert McNamara, who declared that guns had been made obsolete, the Hun didn't need bombs or rockets. In the hands of a sufficiently motivated pilot, the four 20-millimeter cannons arrayed in a neat line below that beautifully oval intake pumped out a stream of rounds that were damn near as big as the shells that the NVA were shooting up at them. The Misty pilots also specialized in SAR, or search and rescue missions. If an American pilot got shot down and parachuted into that thick canopy, more often than not, it would be a Misty pilot who saw where they went in. They'd orbit over the site to draw fire away from the incoming rescue helicopters, and if they were in radio contact with the downed pilot, they might rough up someone in the neighborhood so long as they could be sure of the locations of that pilot. It was understood that if an American pilot went down over enemy territory, the full might and resources of the United States of America would be deployed to get that man back no matter what, even if they were from the Navy. This was a sacred agreement to these men and one that Dick Rutan was once asked to break. Dick recalled one misty mission where an American pilot parachuted into the jungle. Dick was orbiting overhead, and he'd established contact with the downed pilot using his handheld radio. 
Dick was getting shot at enthusiastically when the rescue helicopters finally arrived and they were drawing terrific fire too, more than anything they'd ever seen. Now the men back in the air-conditioned offices decided that this was just too risky and the rescue attempt was being called off. Since the pilot's radio had such short range, they radioed Rutan and told him to tell that pilot that due to the volume of ground fire, no one would be coming for him. Now to understate the case about as massively as possible, this did not sit well with Dick Rutan. We had an agreement, he would tell me 50 years after the war, an agreement between me and my government, and the agreement was this. I would agree to risk my one and only young life doing what they wanted me to do with the understanding that if I got into trouble, they would throw in everything they had to come and get me the hell out of there. But now, Rutan had been ordered to tell his fellow pilot, who he didn't know, that that agreement was no longer in effect. I'm not doing it, he replied over the radio. Say again, Misty One Two? I said, I'm not doing it. I'm not gonna be the person to bear that news. Now it was pretty quickly established that this wasn't a request. And after a few moments, the ground controller replied that this was a direct order from a general. Get the general on the radio, Rutan replied. Sorry, say again, said the controller in disbelief. I said, get the general on the radio, barked Rutan. I've still got some fuel. I'll wait. Now, when he was told that the general in question was not inclined to discuss the matter over the radio, Dick Rutan cut to the chase. Okay, he said, in that case, you tell the general that I want him to tell me what to say to that man. Tell him to give me the exact wording specifying how the United States Air Force has declined to honor the agreement that we flew out here under. I want him to tell me those exact words to use. Now this response actually shamed the brass in question into changing his mind. Soon the rescue helicopter was back and a very brave para-rescue man went down with a rope and a harness. While the evac helicopter hovered just above the jungle canopy getting shot to pieces, the guys on the winch could look down and see the PJ with the downed pilot waving them off, telling them to get out of there. But the pilot was made of sterner stuff, however, and he held his position as holes started appearing all throughout the green aluminum skin of the helicopter. Now finally, the PJ got the harness around the pilot, hooked himself to the line, and the evac helicopter started making its way up and out, the two men trailing behind like sinkers on a fishing line. And then it proceeded to get the hell out of there, about as close to the speed of heat as a shot up helicopter could go. These things we do that others may live, reads the motto on the pararescue flash. And once they were both safe aboard, the pilot got a chance to tell him how much he admired the PJ's courage and selflessness in waving them away. It wasn't courage and it wasn't selflessness, he shouted back over the thumping of the big rotors. There were big pieces of helicopter falling from the sky and any second now one of them was going to be landing on me. Now it turns out that the pilot made it and as soon as he pulled himself together, he started to gather evidence to court-martial all of the parties involved for having taken so long to pick him up. Pretty soon, everyone involved found themselves wishing that they'd just left the bastard back there in the jungle. Of the 157 MISTI pilots that flew these missions, 34 of them, that's 22%, would be shot down, and two MISTI pilots would be shot down twice. Seven would be killed in action, and four of them would become POWs. On one of those MISTI missions, 
Dick Rutan was flying escort for Major General Bob Worley, who was in an RF-4C photo reconnaissance phantom when he got hit by gunfire. The tip of Rutan's wing was five feet away from the wing of the shot-up RF-4, but the twin-engine great smoking Thunderhog looked like it was going to make it back okay. We were having an almost casual conversation, then bang, recalled Rutan. He told Worley that he had a fire in the distinctively shaped camera bay in the nose of the photo recon phantom. Things still seemed to be relatively under control as they headed to the coast. In the Vietnam War, the chances of survival and recovery were far, far better if you had to eject out over water rather than into the jungle canopy owned by furious natives. Just as they got to the coast, the rear canopy blew and the WSO ejected. Now the instant that that canopy opened in the back, the airflow pushing on the shattered nose had a place to exit. Fire instantly blew from the camera bay of the aircraft right onto the pilot and then out the gaping hole from the missing canopy behind him. The fire onset was fast and very intense, said Rutan, who was screaming at Worley to eject. But the battle damage had warped the front canopy and it wouldn't come off prior to ejection. Dick Rutan's younger brother, Bert, who had started his career doing flight testing in the Air Force on the F-4 said, on many fighters, it's okay to eject with the canopy closed. On the F-4, however, the canopy is so strong that an ejection would leave two thirds of your body parts still in the cockpit. There's a cable on the canopy that pulls the eject lock plug off of the seat when the canopy leaves. Thus, it is impossible to eject with the canopy on. Dick Rutan followed him all the way down just a few feet off of his wing as General Bob Worley burned to death in front of his eyes. He impacted on the beach just south of the DMZ in South Vietnam, recalled Rutan. The whole forward fuselage had turned black by the time it finally impacted. He added, it shook me up big time. I almost crashed right beside him. Worley's backseater had managed to land somewhat offshore, but before American rescue helicopters could reach him, a number of enemy patrol vessels pushed off from the shore and raced after him. The WSO was rescued at sea, Rutan continued. I shot up some junks that were trying to get to him. Dick would often fly over that crash site in the weeks that followed. It took him a long time to get over it. But there are some things that you do not get over. I once heard Dick Rutan say that whenever he's in Washington, D.C., he makes two stops. One, to look at the Voyager hanging from the ceiling of the Air and Space Museum, and the other, to pause before the name of a close friend inscribed on the ebony walls of the Vietnam Memorial. Dick Rutan had made friends with fellow Hun driver Howard K. Williams while in gunnery school. Now, it's not easy to gain the respect of a fighter pilot, but Howard was amazing, and he graduated first in his class. Dick pushed hard to get him to enlist with the rest of the A-team. We usually gave a guy three or four flights in the back seat before he transitioned to aircraft commander and fly up front, Rutan explained. Williams was on his first mission in the front seat when his F-100F got hit. The entire left side of the fuselage was on fire. Fellow Misty pilot Brian Williams, no relation, was in the back seat. He ejected and was picked up almost immediately. But he was not able to see the impact, nor did he see any sign of a parachute. Dick Rutan flew over that charred spot on the side of a small ridge many times. He and all the others had every reason to think that his friend had gone in with his aircraft, but that's not what happened. Many years later, 
Dick Rutan would learn the truth about what had really happened to his best friend. Howard Williams had managed to eject from his F-100 before it impacted the ridge, but somehow he'd broken a leg as he punched out. He landed in Laos. The villagers soon converged on him. Unable to move, Williams was defenseless. They hacked him to pieces with their machetes, said Rutan. At first, they refused to bury him, but eventually he was interred in a shallow grave. Now, after the war, Graves' registration officials went looking for him. He appeared to have been exhumed by a large jungle animal, Dick recalled in a flat monotone. There wasn't much left of him to bring back, but what was left they did bring back, and Howard Williams now rests in honor at Arlington National Cemetery. And then it was Dick's turn. He was in the front seat for his 105th and final Misty mission. He was lower than normal and back at his favorite hobby, which was blowing up North Vietnamese supply trucks making their way down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Now, coming out of the pass, there was a huge bang, and the Hun shuddered as if swatted by a giant hand. We're in trouble, yelled Chuck Shaheen from the back seat. The fire indicator was lit, and worse, the fuel gauge was unwinding fast. Now, neither of them knew how bad the damage was, but they were obviously losing a lot of fuel. Dick immediately climbed and turned for the coast. He could see the water shining in the distance. He could also see that at the speed they were flying, they were going to run out of fuel before they ran out of jungle. So that meant there was only one option left. Fuel was gushing out of the airplane. If you're going to lose fuel, you might as well spread it into the jet's afterburner and accelerate as much as possible. But there was obviously a fire and a lot of damage and spraying fuel back there, and there was a very real chance that the jet would explode if they hit the afterburner. But both men agreed that there really wasn't much of a choice, and both of them found themselves kind of instinctively scrunching down against the upcoming explosion as Dick advanced it to the afterburners. But the afterburner did not explode, and the Hun did what the Hun did best, which is go fast in a straight line. The fuel was still leaking at the same rate, but now they were heading for the water much faster. Dick Rutan felt himself suddenly relax. He wasn't just calm, he was practically euphoric. He suddenly knew that they had enough airspeed and altitude to make it well offshore and rescue helicopters were already on the way. In his mind's eye, he could see the graceful arc of his flight path curving down towards the sea. Then the engine flamed out. That was just fine with Dick Rutan, because as he rode that trusty hunt down and out to their best ejection point, Dick realized that his war was over. For his action flying Misty missions, he'd been awarded the Silver Star. Dick Rutan would also be awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, a rare honor bestowed on such aviation superstars as the Wright brothers, Charles Lindbergh, Amelia Earhart, Jimmy Doolittle, Chuck Yeager, Mercury astronauts Alan Shepard and John Glenn, five of the Apollo moonwalkers, and U.S. President George H.W. Bush. Not only would Dick Rutan be awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross with the V for Valor device and three bronze oak leaf clusters, he would be awarded it five times. But none of that mattered much as Chuck Shaheen and Dick Rutan both reached for the loud handle and then took a brief swim in the warm waters of the Gulf of Tonkin until being picked up by a jolly green giant rescue helicopter and flown back to base. He had flown 325 combat missions over Vietnam. And as he stretched out in the helicopter, he realized 
that he had been at the bleeding edge of the spear and he'd made it through. As soon as he realized that he had survived Vietnam, Dick Rutan lay down on the floor of the helicopter and he fell sound asleep. Remember those old brain teasers that used to be so popular? Well, here's my favorite. A man leaves town on a Sunday heading west. He travels west for two Mondays, but only one Thursday. And he's still traveling west when he returns home. How did he do it? Give up? Okay, the answer is he did it by being Dick Rutan. So, again, at 8.01 a.m. on the morning of Sunday, December 14, 1986, Dick Rutan and Gina Yeager took off from Edwards Air Force Base in the Mojave Desert of California. 3,500 people were present. 55,000 people had driven out the night before and endured the bitter cold of that December 23rd morning to be there to welcome them home in person. Also watching, by the way, live, were tens of millions of people, including the President of the United States and a skinny 27-year-old pilot wannabe in Miami, Florida. But the idea began, as all great ideas do, on the back of a napkin. Dick and Gina Yeager, his girlfriend at the time, were out at dinner in Mojave's very finest restaurant when the subject came up. Gina could see the glitter in Dick Rutan's eyes at the mere thought of all of that glory, and she wanted to be a part of it. So they fetched a pen and a napkin, and Bert sketched out the basics for what will become his 76th aircraft design. Amazingly, that back-of-a-napkin sketch was a near-perfect rendition of the final design. Now, very broadly speaking, there are two ways to accomplish something if you're designing an airplane. One is brute force, and the other is pairing. Brute force says that you build a strong airplane, put a big engine in it, and then load up the fuel. But you can't get there from here with brute force, and here's why. A big, sturdy airplane is heavy, and one that carries all of that fuel is very heavy. Okay, no problem. We put a bigger engine on it to lift the heavier weight. But the bigger engine burns more gas than the smaller one, which means you have to carry more fuel. More fuel means a heavier airplane, which means a bigger engine, which means even more fuel, which means an even bigger engine. And that is a train that just keeps on going faster and faster, and it never stops. Now, Bert instantly knew that the only way to do this would be to go in the other direction. You can't keep adding things to make this happen. You have to pair things away. A lighter plane needs a smaller engine. A smaller engine burns less fuel. Carrying less fuel means a lighter plane, which means a smaller engine, which means less fuel, which means a lighter plane. But unlike brute force, there is a point where pairing has to stop. You can make a plane heavier and heavier forever, but when you try and make it lighter and lighter, you can't reduce the weight past zero. And in order to have a mission, you need zero plus. Zero plus the weight of the engine, plus the weight of the fuel, plus the weight of the pilot or pilots, plus the weight of the avionics, the radios, the radar, etc., plus the weight of the food and water needed for the pilots. These things you have to have, and that's where pairing stops. Now, Bert Rutan's job was to figure out how to build an airplane that could carry almost 10,000 pounds of fuel, an engine or two, a radio, two pilots, and enough food and water for them to survive long enough to make the flight plus live for at least 48 hours after they landed. That was the rule for the flight to be certified. No kamikaze landings without landing gear, no immediately fatal effects in terms of carbon monoxide poisoning or dehydration, all the rest. Voyager would have to fly from point A to point A, and the crew would have to survive the experience. So, 
How light can you make this airplane? And how do you know when you cannot pair away another ounce? Well, Charles Lindbergh had this exact problem when he attempted to become the first man to cross the Atlantic solo in the spirit of St. Louis. Lindbergh became so weight conscious that he took his paper aviation charts, got a pair of scissors, and cut off the one-eighth of an inch white paper border around the charts in order to save weight. He may be saved an ounce or two. Now, would that ounce or two make a difference? No, it most certainly would not. But that attitude would, because it wasn't just the white paper margins on his charts. He was that ruthless in paring away everything else as well, and that would make a difference. Now, Bert Rutan, of course, understood this in his bones. And after a while, the scores of volunteers who actually helped build the Voyager realized what his criteria was when it came to weight. When it came to weight, Bert Rutan, they said, would take the component in question and he'd throw it into the air. If it came back down, it was too heavy. Now, the very best thing about history is the ability to fast forward through the boring parts, although in this case, as in many other cases, the boring parts are where the battle is won or lost. We can look at Dick Rutan flying an airplane for 216 hours straight and we think, oh my God, what determination, what endurance. But those 216 hours were a relative cakewalk. The real fight was getting up every day for five years, trying to figure out where to get the money to pay for the things that you'd need to buy tomorrow so you could put them on the airplane the day after. Voyager was, from the beginning, a group of people with a vision, scores of volunteers, endless hard work for little or no pay, and all the rest. But unlike many other projects, Voyager was never funded from the beginning, and it was only fully funded when they rolled it out on the morning of December 14, 1986, and they finally paid for the 1,610 gallons of 100-octane aviation gasoline. That aircraft not only flew around the world, it did it by lifting itself up by its own bootstraps. Dick and Gina had to make continuous fundraising appearances. They would talk to private donors, they autographed posters, and so on for five years in an endless, unrelenting slog of raising just enough money to build just the next thing. The constant cajoling, the endless meetings, the years of promises falling through is a demoralizing, soul-destroying process for a normal person. For a supersonic fighter pilot, it is a special kind of hell. But Dick Rutan kept his eyes on the prize. That cloudless blue volume out there, that endless blue sea. No markers, no clouds, nothing to tell you how high or how fast you're going, not even the occasional little cloud puff to give you shade underneath that stifling plexiglass greenhouse of a canopy. That massive, endless, featureless blue thing out there was sacred to pilots because this is where it all happened. Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier right over there. That's where the stunningly beautiful Mach 3 Valkyrie bomber fell out of the sky. Over there is where they dropped Neil Armstrong on his X-15 flight. Sitting against the hangar, you could watch the space shuttle come in to land right over your head. It looked near enough to be able to count the tiles, and when the sonic boom hit, it felt like somebody had fired a 45 automatic six inches behind your head. The Mojave Desert is the center of the aviation universe. Amazing things happened there, and they would continue to happen. Now, Dick Rutan had no way of knowing it at the time, but on the 4th of July, 1991, right on the far side of the desert up against the San Gabriel Mountains, Bill Whittle himself would fly his first ever solo flight in a glider. That's the kind of place it is. 
So on a bad day, Dick Rutan would sit against the hangar, he'd look up into that big blue bowl, and he'd imagine how it would look as he came flying in from the east and got Voyager configured for landing after flying around the world and snatching for himself the last remaining trophy that would be worthy of a Charles Lindbergh or a Jimmy Doolittle or a Neil Armstrong. He would visualize himself landing that plane again and again. He'd see himself getting out again and again, putting on his cowboy hat again and again and again, and then finally going to bed with the last prize left in his back pocket. And then on a bad day, Dick would get back up on his feet, he'd slap the yellow dust off his pants, and then he'd go back inside the hangar and get back to work. Now, by 1984, they were ready to begin flight testing this bizarre-looking flying machine. She had incredibly long wings. Those high aspect ratio wings would give Voyager a glide ratio of 27 to 1, meaning it would go forward for 27 miles for every mile lost in altitude, although hopefully it wouldn't be doing much gliding, but that's how efficient the aircraft was. Now, Bird had solved the power plant problem in yet another imaginative way. To get the 2,250-pound aircraft and its 9,800 pounds of fuel into the air and keep it flying while still loaded with fuel would require an engine big enough to do the job. But that engine would be far too thirsty to make it around the world. So Bert designed the Voyager to have two engines one pushing and one pulling. They would take off on both engines and they'd fly for the first few days. When Voyager had burned just enough fuel to become just light enough to hold altitude on a single engine, they'd shut down the front motor and cruise on the rear engine alone. Bert had basically taken the engine power he needed for takeoff at the plane's maximum weight and split the horsepower into two pieces. And that would allow him to shut off half of his engine power when it was no longer needed and just delicately sip fuel for the last six or seven days on just one engine. It is genuinely impossible for me to really convey just how fragile the Voyager was. Its outer skin consisted of two layers of carbon fiber cloth together were one eleven thousandth of an inch thick. It's about as thick as a sheet of paper. If you tap on the skin of Voyager, you'd leave a little dents in the skin and the honeycomb structure underneath. And if you forgot yourself for a moment and leaned against it with your elbow, the aircraft's skin would be so badly damaged that you'd have to bring it back into the hangar, cut out the dented honeycomb structure, and reskin the entire area. Gina Yeager would be making the world flight with Dick. Now, she'd been a spark plug that had helped keep the project moving, and chase pilot Mike Melville would later say that without her determination to keep going during those dark years of struggling for money, the project almost certainly would have folded. She had certainly earned her place on board that tiny ship, and her small size and lightweight did not hurt in this regard. But Judy Yeager was not a natural pilot, and she had trouble learning the aircraft systems. Despite the requirement for a two-person crew, According to Dick Rattan, she would perhaps spend 15 minutes total, including the flight testing, actually flying the Voyager, and none of that time would be spent during the actual around-the-world flight. Oh, and parenthetically, the couple's romantic attraction had broken up during the building phase, which meant that both of them had volunteered to spend nine days in a phone booth with their exes. The only other person to actually fly the Voyager was Dick and Bert's friend, Mike Melville. He would bought one of the first sets of plans for a Bert Rutan-designed home-build classic called the Long Easy, a dramatically improved version of Bert's earlier design, which he'd named the Very Easy due to the simplicity of building it. On a tour of the U.S. from his native South Africa, 
Mike and his wife Sally decided to stop at Mojave for an hour or two and ask Bert Rutan himself some specific questions regarding just how to build this revolutionary design. He met Bert at the Rutan Aircraft Factory hangar, and essentially, he never left. Bert asked both Mike and Sally to work for the company and handle builder questions that were starting to pour in from the hundreds of sets of long, easy plans he'd sold. Now, Mike was not only an excellent builder, he was also a superb natural pilot. You could say that Mike was a good stick, but he was much more than that. He was a careful, meticulous, intelligent, and courageous test pilot, and his contribution to the Voyager mission was incalculable. He'd get his reward 18 years after it landed, if it landed. In the initial flight test with minimal fuel load, Voyager was sluggish but flyable. Bert had pared down the size of the rudders, the ailerons, the elevators, and stabilizers to the absolute minimum needed. This airplane was designed with one attribute in mind and one only, and that was range. Anything else, crew comfort, flight duration, better controllability had to be sacrificed to reduce the weight and the drag. But as the flight test continued, and as Voyager flew with more and more fuel, some serious issues developed. For example, the canard at the front of the airplane was designed to be just as slick and small as possible, which was fine. But on one test flight, Dick found himself flying through a light rain shower, and the Voyager's nose started to dive. Dick did everything he could, but the canard had picked up enough rainwater to interrupt the air flowing over it. That meant that the front canard was generating less lift, and that meant that the plane was in an unrecoverable dive. Dick told Jenna to put on her parachute and prepare to bail out. What are you gonna do, she asked. I'm gonna stay with the airplane, replied Dick, to which Gina Yeager, to her everlasting credit, replied, then I'm staying too. Now, Dick Rutan did not solve that problem, God did. Voyager flew through the last of the rain, the canard dried out and regained lift, and Voyager recovered. Now, when he landed, Dick strode over to his brother's office, filled with sound and fury. Fortunately, he wasn't there, Dick would later write, but he got up on the phone and told him in no uncertain terms that he'd flown through a small rain shower and this damn canard had nearly gotten both of them killed. I waited for him to reply to this verbal broadside, Dick wrote, and after a moment, all he said was, don't fly through the rain. We were gonna fly around the world at the equator and I was not supposed to fly through the rain. Now, the more fuel that they loaded aboard Voyager during these test flights, the worse the flying qualities became. Dick put Voyager into a 20 degree bank, that's peanuts for just about anything else in the sky, but the absolute limit for this paper thin airplane, and it wouldn't turn. The drag on the upper wing pulled it in the direction opposite of the turn, and the puny rudders and vertical stabilizers were not strong enough to keep the tail in back of the airplane where it belonged. A 20-degree left bank would result in Voyager sluggishly yawing to the right, and this didn't make Dick happy either. Bert, he said face-to-face -face this time, your damn rudders are too small. Well, you knew for this to work out, it would result in minimal, controllable flight characteristics, replied his little brother. God damn it, Bert, the airplane won't turn, he thundered. Dick, he replied calmly, this is an around the world flight. The plane doesn't have to turn at all. Now, just prior to this world flight, Dick and Gina had set up a camera out on the runway. All alone, they walked up to it and recorded what Dick called a death tape. 
Dick knew that if they disappeared without a trace, the volunteers would spend the rest of their lives wondering if they'd made a mistake or missed something. Don't you dare think that, he said. Everyone on this team did their very best. You should be damn proud of what you did here. We didn't make it, but we gave it everything we had, and every one of you should look back on this with pride and not sadness. And then he added something else. The space shuttle Challenger had exploded early that same year, and some of the families of the crew had tried to sue NASA for the failure that killed seven astronauts, a prospect that made Dick Rutan ill. If we don't make it back, and any of you try to disgrace this program by hiring lawyers, then Gina and I are gonna come back and we're gonna haunt you, your children, and your grandchildren. Don't even think about it. Mike Melville had been flying the chase plane. Bert was in the front right seat with a video camera and Sally Melville rode in the back. As they closed in on the chase plane, they could see that the entire wing section below the winglets, these little things that would be on the end, had been completely abraded away by the runway. As they continued to chase Voyager over the California coast and out over the Pacific, there was a great deal of discussion about whether or not the aircraft was still airworthy. The winglets helped reduce wingtip vortices, which produced drag, and that wasn't the problem. The problem was, how close had the damaged area gotten to the outermost fuel tanks? The winglets themselves started to flutter and then departed the aircraft. Bert told the crew on Voyager that this shouldn't make a significant difference. He said as far as the aircraft designer was concerned, she was still good to go. They waved goodbye to Dick and Gina, who waved back. And as Voyager continued its slow climb to the west, Mike turned the chase plane back for home. That actually scared me pretty badly, Bert would later say. We'd followed them out so far that we couldn't even see the California coast. I've never flown that far over open water before. Voyager continued west and disappeared behind them. Everyone who'd ever seen Dick Rutan fly as a test pilot called him the man with the velvet arm. Although it's probably closer to the truth to say that he called himself the man with the velvet arm and no one would disagree with him. This full of fuel, Voyager could hardly be said to be controllable at all. The slightest turbulence would cause the wings to flex up. Then they dragged the heavy fuel booms up with them, but by then the wings had reached their structural limit and it started to back down. This was an ever-increasing oscillation, which if not corrected within about 15 seconds, would tear the wings off the airplane. For a while there, it looked like Voyager was flapping its way into the sky. For the first three days, nothing but the velvet arm could manage to gently dampen out that fatal runaway feedback loop. So, Dick Rutan flew for three days, by hand, without a moment's rest. Voyager had crossed the entire Pacific Ocean and had passed the Philippines before it felt stable enough to set the autopilot for a 10-minute catnap. And there were other worries as well. They would spend the entire trip surfing the westward-flowing equatorial winds, which would add a 25-mile-an-hour tailwind to the flight. That's a big deal if you're averaging 116 miles per hour in the first place. But that equatorial route would take them over Asia, Africa, and South America, all three continents legendary for their oceans of bureaucratic red tape. Deciding it was easier to ask forgiveness than to ask permission, and if they'd had to wait for permission, they'd still be sitting in the hangar right now. They had political issues to worry about as well as the fuel and the weather concerns. And it was 1986, so the Cold War was still very hot. As we approached Vietnam, I had a lot of thoughts dancing in my head, Dick would later say. Chief among them would be my concern that they would shoot me down, again. 
The days droned on. They were starting to develop serious problems with the coolant pump seal as they approached the island of Sri Lanka, just off the tip of the Indian subcontinent. I looked down at this beautiful tropical island recalled Dick, an incredibly beautiful gleaming white sand beach, and right there next to it, a black asphalt strip of a long, smooth runway. Now, by this time, Dick Rutan had been flying nonstop for five days, with maybe a 10 or 15 minute catnap here and there when the air was dead calm. If the seal on that pump were to fail, he thought to himself, we'd probably get killed ditching in the Indian Ocean. Why not just land right here? I had a perfectly good reason. In half an hour, I'd be down there on that beach sipping my ties and finally getting some real sleep. And then he thought of all the volunteers. And then he heard his mother's voice in his head telling him that he could do anything if he put his mind to it. So this ragged, dehydrated, utterly exhausted man flexed the velvet arm and he kept on flying. Four days of endless exhaustion urinating into a tube and attaching a round adhesive bag to what he referred to as the exhaust nozzle. As they crossed Africa, Dick could feel his mind starting to shut down from sleep deprivation. It was like that scene in 2001, A Space Odyssey, where they shut down Halley explained. I could feel my mental systems just shutting down one by one. I could see the instruments, but I didn't have the slightest idea what they were there for. Hell, I held my own hand up in front of my face and I couldn't remember what it was there for. Now, by this point, he started to hallucinate. He saw the instrument panel inflate like a balloon and press right towards his face. On a previous endurance flight, he'd had an experience common to all exhausted pilots throughout history and all across the world. I looked up and sitting right there on the canard was a little man about this big, called Rutan. His skin was black as obsidian, and he had red eyes and black clothes and razor-sharp teeth. He was wearing an expression of pure rage. And not only were we able to talk, we actually began to banter. Dick, he said, just go ahead, close your eyes and go to sleep. You've already crashed and you're already dead. This is how everyone feels when they're about to leave the planet Earth. He had to get some real sleep. As they were crossing Africa, Mission Control told them that he was about three hours away from a single African mountain, a dormant volcano called Mount Cameroon. Halfway there, about 90 minutes ahead, was a checkpoint called Yankee Delta. Gina managed to talk Dick out of the seat. The air was calm and the autopilot was doing just fine. Wake me when we get to Yankee Delta, he told Gina. You understand? Wake me at Yankee Delta. Gina told him she got the message, so Dick climbed out of the pilot seat. Gina climbed in, and Dick stretched out as best he could. He was instantly asleep. I woke up what felt like a minute later, he said. He was running a cold sweat. Are we at Yankee Delta yet, he asked. Oh, that, replied Gina. No, we passed that a long time ago. Dick leapt forward. The radar showed Mount Cameroon about a mile directly ahead. He didn't have time to get on the controls. Turn, 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 he shouted. And Gina spun the heading indicator on the autopilot. Voyager began a slow turn to the side. Dick Rutan estimates that they came within about a mile of the face of Mount Cameroon at 116 miles an hour. If he had slept for a minute or two longer, they both would have been killed instantly. Voyager plowed past the west coast of Africa and headed across the Atlantic. 
On the morning of December 23rd, Bert Rutan and Mike Melville headed out in the pre-dawn darkness heading south towards San Diego. Just a few hours earlier, they'd gotten the call that Voyager still had at least 28 gallons of fuel remaining, and that meant that they could make it all the way back to Edwards Air Force Base. As they flew south, way off in the distant gloom, they could see the faint flash of an aircraft strobe. Was it them? It was very far away. Uh, Dick, can you turn off your strobe for a few seconds and then turn it on again? Off in the murky distance, the flashing white light disappeared for several seconds, and when it came back on again, Bert Rutan and Mike Melville suddenly started to cry. Sobbing. They couldn't read the instruments. There they were, exclaimed Bert, right there. As they approached Edwards Air Force Base, low clouds had covered the desert floor. Dick had one last thing to worry about. Would Edwards let them land? They didn't have clearance through the restricted airspace around the base, and Edwards was a constant hotbed of activity. What if they denied him permission to land? Dick keyed his mic. He said, uh, Edwards Tower, this is Voyager 1. Sir, we were wondering if you could sneak us in between your normal traffic. We can stay out of your way on the way in. Voyager 1, this is Edwards Tower. We've been expecting you, and we've canceled all flight activities for the day. There are 50,000 people waiting for you. Voyager 1 cleared to land. Welcome home. You're probably about 75 feet now. That's probably about 40 feet. 30 feet. Come on, baby. All right. 10 feet. 6 feet. Yeah. 1 foot. Yeah. Yeah. Down. Voyager taxi to a stop. Dick Rutan pulled himself out of the cockpit and sat on the fuselage. Someone handed him his cowboy hat. He put it on, trying to look nonchalant. But the real reason he sat there for so long was because he couldn't feel his legs and he didn't want to collapse to the ground in front of all of those well-wishers and TV crews from around the world. He had just landed after flying around the planet exactly the way he had visualized it so many times before. Felt even better when I did it for real, he said with a grin. It flew 26,366 statute miles without stopping and without refueling. So, how far is that? Well, let me put it this way. If Voyager had departed from Santa Monica Airport, and Santa Monica's runway would have to extend out into the Pacific Ocean for that to happen, but put that aside for a moment. To cover the distance Voyager actually flew, you would have to fly without landing, refueling, or getting out to stretch your legs from Santa Monica Airport, go and fly around the Empire State Building in New York City, then come back to Santa Monica Airport, and then go back to the Empire State Building, and then come back to Santa Monica Airport, then go back to the Empire State Building, then come back to Santa Monica Airport, and then go back to the Empire State Building, and then come back to Santa Monica Airport, and then go back to the Empire State Building, and then land in Boston. Anyone who's ever done a 15-hour drive in an automobile knows how unpleasant that can be, and that's with frequent stopping and walking around. Dick and Gina Yeager flew for 216 hours nonstop. If you were to retrace their flight in a commercial airliner, and you can't because they flew over two and a half times further than the maximum range of a Boeing 777-220LR, but if you could do it, you'd be in that middle aisle seat for 48 hours straight 
Between the time the wheels on Voyager left the runway until they returned again nine days later, Voyager had flown 11% of the distance to the moon. The crew of Apollo 11 went to the moon at 24,791 miles per hour. Voyager cruised at an average speed of about 116 miles per hour. It was the last major milestone in human aviation, an unrefueled nonstop flight around the world. Now, in practical terms, it accomplished absolutely nothing. They did it for the same reason Sir Edmund Hillary first climbed Mount Everest, because it was there. But in terms of courage, determination, grit, innovation, teamwork, the entrepreneurial spirit, and just sheer guts, it was and remains an unsurpassed feat. Dick Rutan's flight in the Voyager provided the world's cleanest data set on how human willpower alone can accomplish results even more impressive than the raw genius needed to build the airplane in the first place. So, what do you do once you've flown an aircraft that had flown around the world without stopping or refueling? Well, if you're Bert Rutan, you build one that gives you a better look at the planet you just circumnavigated. Bert had long been dissatisfied with the glacial pace of exploration and innovation from the agency so many of us grew up loving, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA. Now, most people would grumble and then they'd shake their fist at a cloud, and that would be that. But Bert Rutan, on the other hand, decided if he didn't like the way that NASA was being run, then that left him no choice but to build his own space program. So... That's what he did. By the early 2000s, Bert Rutan had become an aviation legend. In fact, by the early 2000s, Bert had already been an aviation legend for 15 years. He arranged a meeting with Microsoft co-founder, the late Paul Allen, and came back to Mojave with a check for something north of $10 million. Now, after watching the funding grind on Voyager, this one had to have serious money behind it and from the beginning. He built a small rocket plane, looking every bit as unconventional as the other 385 that he's designed. And as I write this, an incredible 49 of those designs have been built and flown. And some of them, like the Long Easy, has put flying in reach of hundreds of hardworking builder pilots who build these pocket rocket ships in their garages. He called it Spaceship One. Now, this would be just a suborbital flight, just up and back down like the first two Mercury missions, but they would have two or three minutes of weightlessness at the top, the sky would be pitch black at noon, and they would be able to clearly see the Earth as a giant globe because you were in, by God, outer space. He solved the problem of re-entry heat the same way he'd solved the problem of the Voyager's need to fly around the world, in other words, unconventionally. You see, what you wanted on the way up was something sleek and streamlined, something that would slice through the air as easily as possible and get up to the Kármán line, the official lower limit of outer space, 100 kilometers straight up, which in the language that God intended pilots to use worked out to 328,000 feet. Now, historically, spacecraft that looked one way going up looked the same way coming down. The X-15, for example, was a sleek black dart that had to have extensive, heavy, heat shielding for the re-entry phase. But it took a Burt Rutan to realize that if you could add enough atmospheric drag to the vehicle, it would never go fast enough to get that hot. Now, a parachute clearly would not survive the re-entry stresses, so he decided that the only way to do it was to take little Spaceship One and literally break it in half. Slick as a dart on the way up, once it got to Apogee, the tail feathers would move to a 90 degree angle and it would come back down flat on its belly, nothing but drag. 
Once safely through the highest speeds, the tail would transition back to its previous configuration and it would glide to a landing at Mojave. Bird not only had to build the vehicle, he had to build a carrier plane to get it high enough for it to drop and light the rocket engine, and he also had to design his own mission control center and all the rest, including getting FAA clearance to fly into outer space and turning dusty, out-of-the-way Mojave into the world's first official commercial spaceport. On June 21st, 2004, Spaceship One dropped from the White Knight mothership. Its rubber-burning rocket engine lit up and it crossed the Kármán line to become the world's first privately funded spaceflight. Flying Spaceship One that day was Bert and Dick's longtime friend, the irreplaceable Mike Melville, who had decided to just kind of swing past Bert Rutan's place for some quick advice on building his long easy, and who was asked to stay and did, along with his wonderful wife, Sally. African-American Mike Melville, a naturalized U.S. citizen from South Africa, became the world's first private astronaut 16 years before Bob and Doug rode their SpaceX Dragon capsule up to the space station. Now, for Dick, there were still a few lesser aviation firsts left to be achieved. One of them was the first balloon flight around the world. Dick got his balloon license in 1995, found a sponsor, and in January of 1998, he launched aboard the helium-filled Global Hilton with co-pilot Dave Melton, attempting to recreate in a general way his 26,366-mile flight aboard Voyager. And he fell only 26,266 miles short of that goal when a manufacturing defect caused a helium cell to rupture at 30,000 feet. He and Dave Melton rode the crippled balloon down to about 6,000 feet, where both parachuted to safety about 100 miles from their starting point. As soon as he stood up, he determined to try again in a new capsule called World Quest, which he was certain could and would make the trip. But before he could get that aloft, the Breitling orbiter had completed the first circumnavigation by a balloon on March 20th of 1999. In May of 2000, Dick got a last-minute invitation to fly to the North Pole aboard the largest biplane ever built, the Soviet-built Antonov An-2, whose NATO designation was the Colt. They made a lovely landing on the site using the aircraft skids, and as soon as they'd come to a complete stop, they discovered that they had not come to a complete stop. The ice that they had landed on was abnormally thin, and the huge biplane started to sink. Dick got it all on videotape. He thought it was pretty cool until he realized that he and several other people were standing at the North Pole without any shelter or means of leaving. They made themselves an igloo and all of them were eventually picked up and rescued without harm. In 2001, Dick Rutan became the chief test pilot for XCOR Aerospace, a Mojave airport-based startup that had plans to build their own two-person suborbital vehicle called the Lynx. Now, Dick had insisted that before every flight, engineers would light and shut down each one of the four rocket motors attached to the back of the old, familiar Long Easy, turning it into a rocket plane called the Easy Rocket. Powered by kerosene and supercharged by the incredible energy density of liquid oxygen or LOX, Dick had made it crystal clear that if they did not perform this test, then he was not going to get into the aircraft. But on one test flight, he was strapped in and ready to go when he realized that they had not tested the engines. Now, the Long Easy is a tight fit even without the parachute, so Dick decided to break his own safety rule and told them to perform the engine test while he was still aboard. Now, one of those four engines lit just fine, but unfortunately, it would not shut off. Dick tried the emergency cutoff switch, but that didn't work either. Just a foot behind his head, 
was a rocket plume nearly 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit that would have cut him in half like an acetylene torch. He was standing on the tow brakes, trying to hold her in place while an engineer rushed forward to depressurize the tanks. This he did, and as the locks ran out, the rocket plume shut down. Now, just off to the side, Dick could see engineers looking at him in wide-eyed, open-mouthed amazement. One or two of them had bright orange reflections in their glasses, and the color matched the bright flickering orange that he could see reflected in his canopy. They were supposed to be walking toward me, but instead they were backing away, he later explained. And that's when Dick realized that there was a huge puddle of kerosene burning underneath the vehicle and very likely a liquid oxygen leak that would turn the kerosene into a small Chernobyl. So Dick unbuckled his harness, hopped out of the easy rocket, and then proceeded to set yet another record, this time for the fastest speed ever recorded in the 50 yard dash. I looked back at the fire burning underneath the fuel and locks tanks and decided I'd better add another 50 yards, he added. But Dick wasn't finished collecting milestones. In 2005, he flew the easy rocket from Mojave to nearby California City. Now this was the longest recorded flight of a rocket plane that took off from one airfield and landed at another. The total distance was a little over eight miles. Dick called it the shortest long distance flight in history. Now I've been dancing around this for this entire episode, but my life intersects this story in a few places, and I wanna close with that, not for my benefit, but perhaps for someone who might be very much like I was. When I was a boy, I saw the Thunderbirds for the first time flying F-100s. And from age seven until age 17, I was determined to become a fighter pilot, shoot down communists at supersonic speeds, and then go on to command the first Mars mission. I got a job at the Miami Planetarium, and for 10 years, I trained to follow that dream. When I took my entrance physical prior to applying to the Air Force Academy, I discovered a problem that I did not know I had. 2015 vision in the right eye, that's good, but 2025 vision in the left. And in order to be a fighter pilot, you needed 2020 uncorrected vision, period. I left that examination room like a zombie, and I was stunned for the rest of that junior to senior year, summer of 1976. My friends finally managed to drag me out of my bedroom, and we started making movies that summer, and I've stayed in the entertainment business ever since. I've worked as a security guard, I've been a lab technician, hotel front desk clerk, I've been a planetarium console operator, I've been a waiter, office temp, and I've held many other menial jobs, including becoming a limousine driver when I arrived in Los Angeles in 1988. In between runs, I would drive out to 94th Aero Squadron Restaurant at Van Nuys Airport. I'd get a Coke, and I'd watch the planes taxi past the chain link fence. Every now and then, I would see a long, easy taxi pass, and I told myself that I would fly one of those things if it killed me. I took a job in the Mojave Desert working at a glider port for $50 a day. Most of this time consisted of launching and stowing gliders, and whenever I wasn't doing that, I was raking rocks in the 115 degree summer heat. But I did get free flight lessons out of it. And back in 2015, I was finally able to buy a long easy for about the price of a new car. Flew it for several years, and I flew it like a fighter pilot too. I ended up with an instrument rating and 975.7 hours of total flight time. Now, I said all of that only to give you this completely original thought. You can't always get what you want. But if you try, sometimes you just may find you get what you need. 
I didn't get to be a fighter pilot, but I did get to fly my own little pocket rocket with a propeller in the back so that I didn't have to see it. But all of those achievements, and even the achievements that got me doing this series, pale compared to the two greatest victories in my life. First, I married the best person in the world. That's the best thing I ever did. And second, and I can never say this out loud without stopping myself to give myself time to be amazed, like I'm doing right now. Because of all of those years of hard, unglamorous, unsung work, I got to know Dick Rutan and Bert Rutan and Mike Melville. Now this isn't name dropping, it's the exact opposite. I am thunderstruck to say that these people are my close friends. And that's the message I would like to leave you with. You may not get what you want in life, and sometimes that is a great blessing. I not only got to relate history, I got to touch it. And the most astonishing thing of all is that when I stand in the presence of my lifelong heroes, they somehow seem to feel the same way about me. It's inconceivable, but it's true. The story of Dick Rutan and an aircraft named Voyager is the living proof that you can do amazing things, historical things, the kind of things that dreams are made out of. But it's not inexpensive. You're going to have to work like hell. And worst of all, you're going to have to find the strength to do what Dick Rutan found the strength to do. Push on no matter how tired you are. If you're having a bad day, go outside, close your eyes and see yourself at whatever finish line you have set for yourself. Do this again and again and again. And no matter how scared or how tired you become, you stay true to that vision and you keep going. I believe in my heart that that door will open to anyone with the courage to walk up to it and turn the doorknob. And that's not an assertion. I've got the evidence. My friend, Dick Rutan, flew around the world in a plane designed by my friend, Bert Rutan, backed up the entire way by the world's first private astronaut, my friend, Mike Melville. The flight of the Voyager convinced me that if they can do it, then so can I. And if I can do it, then so can you.